this is good. Uh, I'm curious, I'd love to hear from you guys, what, what kind of a city do you want to live in? What kind of a city do you want to live in? And just to be clear, I'm not asking for your wish list of infrastructure questions, like one with less potholes. I would like that too, but that's, that's not the direction of the sermon this morning. So try to think of like the adjectives that you would like to describe the city that we live in. Diverse. Exciting. Kind. Yes. Beautiful. Lots of opportunity, yeah. Just. Loving. One or two more. Prosperous, yeah, who doesn't want that, right? I think I can spell that, okay. One more. I would imagine that these are all of the same words we want to see for our own community, right? It's all the, all the, all the same things. And uh, we're not going to talk anymore about that. We're not, we're not going to talk anymore about this right now. So this is just going to be up here. We're going to come back to it, I promise. Uh, it's going to fit in a little bit later to what we're talking about uh, in a sermon. So we're, we've been in this book of, of Nehemiah over the last uh, several weeks. If you have your Bibles, you can open, it, open up to Nehemiah 4. That's where we're going to be this morning. I just want to remind you kind of where we are in the book of Nehemiah as we get started, okay? So we've talked about how Nehemiah was this man who was a cupbearer to the king of Persia, right? And he had this burden on his heart that, that really that God had placed on his heart to see the city of Jerusalem, the city of God, rebuilt because the city had been torn down and reduced to rubble when the people of Israel had been taken into exile. And waves of exiles had come back, right? There were two or three waves before Nehemiah, but he comes back with another group of people and his goal when he comes back is that he's gonna help rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. And so that project at this point has kind of gotten off the ground, the rebuilding has started, and yet while the rebuilding was going forward, what happened is that it encountered opposition. It encountered resistance from the people, from the people around Jerusalem, but also from the people within Jerusalem. That the people who were participating in the rebuilding also experienced resistance coming up inside of them. And so last week we were talking about what does it look like to resist the resistance, right? That's kind of where we were. And this week is in a lot of ways a continuation of that same story of the people's response to resistance. And what we see is the response of this uh, God-worshiping community. 
that the people of God, the people in Jerusalem, they're working to reestablish themselves as a God-worshiping community. And that's what we're gonna be talking about this morning. So if you have your Bibles, you can open up, like I said, to Nehemiah 4. We're gonna be in verses 15 through 23. Verses 15 through 23. I'm gonna read it for us. It says, when our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, because remember there were these enemies who had opposed the building of the wall, so the enemies had heard that their plans to come against the city were made known to the people in the city, and God frustrated their plans to sow confusion in the city, right? We all returned to the wall, each to his work. From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction and half held the spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building on the wall. Those who carried the burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread and we are separated on the wall far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. So we labored at the work and half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. I also said to the people at that time, let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem so that they may be a guard for us by night and may labor by day. So neither I nor my brothers nor my servants nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes. Each kept his weapon at his right hand. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for your word where we ask that you would be speaking to us even from this story of your people from hundreds of thousands of years ago. Lord, I ask that you would use it uh, to shape our desires this morning. And pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. So, so what we see in this passage is what it looks like when, uh, when a community of people is working together to restart the worship of God. It's a God-worshiping community. And then we see that in action in this passage. And I wanna focus us for a second on this idea of a, not for a second, it's gonna be for several minutes, so. Don't, don't get your hopes up, uh, of a God-worshiping community, okay? And, and it's because this week I really have not been able to get away from this question of why is it that these people are working so hard? Right? Why are they, why are they fighting to get this wall rebuilt? Now they're in the midst of some really intense threats. It would be far easier for them to not do this work. So what is happening with them? When we look at verse 17, it says those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon in the other. So, so you've got guys who are like trying to lay bricks on a wall or holding a sword. There's this picture of them being just like at the ready, poised for action at any moment. Verses 21 through 23. So we labored at the work and half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. And Nehemiah tells the people, hey, don't go back to your homes outside of Jerusalem when night comes. You need to stay here because we need a guard here in this city. And, and they're sleeping with all of their clothes on and their weapons right at hand. You, I don't imagine that was very peaceful sleep, right? That's not the kind of sleep you want after a long day. That's like the nerves, they are so tense. Not to mention they're standing out all day in all of this heavy armor right in the middle of the Middle Eastern sun. This is... 
this is a really challenging endeavor that these people have embarked on. Why are they doing this? We've already talked about it some. If, if you remember, we've talked about kind of how the theme of Nehemiah really captures the theme of, of the Bible, right? And we've talked about it with three H's. Anybody remember what those, what those were? Uh, holy people. Holy God. Worshiping a holy God in a holy city. There we go. Okay, yes. A holy people worshiping a holy God in a holy city. But here's my question for us. Is that compelling to you? Like, does that stir your desire at all? Is that something that you long to see or be a part of? A holy people worshiping a holy God in a holy city? And I'm not talking like intellectually. Because you can say, oh, well, yes, I can see how biblically that is true. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm asking, does it move you? Do you have a desire to see that come to pass here? Because desire matters in the Christian life. Jesus cares about that for you, right? That one of the most damaging things that can happen to you in your Christian life is to have a relationship with the work of God that is like my relationship with broccoli, okay? There's supposed to be just a little bit of humor here in the middle of this, so you gotta stay with me, okay? Right, like intellectually, I know broccoli is good for me. Like technically, I know that that's true. And I know that I, like, I need to get past my childhood trauma of how much I hated broccoli, right? Like that's not relevant. I know that this, I know that this is good for me. And, and I need to eat more vegetables, la, la, la. Okay, so when, when I'm served broccoli, I eat it. I do it. I choke it down. I never enjoy it. I never think to myself, you know what I would like for dinner tonight? Broccoli. Right? There, there's no desire in me for broccoli. People are like, oh, we'll just put cheese on it. I'm like, well, that doesn't address the desire issue, right? My desire is for the cheese, not for the, never for the broccoli. We can go about our Christian lives like that. That intellectually we know what's true about God or what we're supposed to do or want, but that our hearts are far from it. And intellect matters, right? Assenting to the fact that God is real, that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead, that's uh, a necessary part of the Christian life, right? If you miss that, you're kind of missing the boat. And it, it's important that we grow in knowledge, absolutely. Our emotions matter in the Christian life, yes. Feeling love, connected, and joyful. Holy living matters, right? Like how we live, that we'd be putting to death sin in our lives, that we'd be growing in Christ-likeness. Yes, all of those things matter, but the Christian life is even more than those things. It's also about God shaping the desires of our hearts. Desire matters. So yes to all of those other things, yes and more. That what God wants to to shape in us is our heart, what we long for. And we see that all throughout the scriptures. Jesus talks about it when he says, where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. And he's addressing this issue of desire. It's all throughout the Psalms. I've been reading Psalm 20 and 21 this week, kind of meditating on those. And uh, in both of those Psalms, there's this line where it says, the psalmist says, and the Lord has given me the desires of my heart. And I've thought, Lord, do I even know what the desires of my heart are? 
But so often I can live, we can live, so out of touch with what it is that we actually want in our lives. And this idea of a holy people worshiping a holy God in a holy city, it could could be like broccoli in our lives. Yes, I know it's good, but do I actually want that? This is really relevant for us. What we set our hearts on, it's what we worship. Desire and and worship are, are deeply connected, almost synonymous. And the reality is, is that we are all always living out of what it is that we desire. That we're all always worshiping. It's true about us as people. There's this guy, David Foster Wallace, who's an author, not a Christian author, but he gave this commencement speech. At this point, I think it was probably 15 years ago, but this is what he says. This is him talking uh, to graduates. I'm gonna say recent graduates, people who are just graduating, however that goes. Okay, so this is what he says in his graduation speech. He says, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is, no ac- there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship, be it Jesus Christ or Allah, be it Yahweh or the wicked mother goddess of the four noble truths or some inf- intangible set of ethical principles is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough, it's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual, sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. On one level, he says, we all know this stuff already. It's been codified as myths, proverbs, cliches, bromides, epigrams, parables, the skeleton of every great story. The trick is keeping the truth up front in daily consciousness. Worship power and you will feel weak and afraid and you will need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out, and so on. Right? David Foster Wallace, he's got this this very clear picture, right? There's, There's a... The insight here is, uh, is painful. That we are all always worshiping and that what we desire, what we worship is what we're gonna bend our lives around. We are all worshipers. So what do you worship? What do you desire? What is it that you give your heart and your imagination to? is the people that we see in this story, they were rebuilding their city out of a desire to worship. They had a picture of a God who was worthy of worship. Or what we know up until this point in the story of Nehemiah is that uh, the temple had already been rebuilt in Jerusalem. So the worship of God technically was going on to some extent. But because there were no walls around the city, nobody wanted to live in the city, it was unsafe. The priests who were responsible for keeping up temple worship didn't want to be in the city. People didn't want to come and worship God in the city because it was so dangerous. And so investing in the walls of the city was a way of investing in the worship of God. But 
those people that were, that were the people that were reading about, they f- they found God compelling or, or worthy of worship. In some sense, they desired Him. Did they also desire safety? Yes. Peace? Yes. The restoration of honor? Yes. A better life for themselves and for their children? Yes. All yes to all of that. They're people, right? But they also desire to see the worship of God restored. And so I think that it, is make, it was making me ask the question, what is it that they saw that was true about God that, that led them to want to worship him? What was it that made them see God as worthy of all of the effort that they're going through in this passage? And I think, guys, that's actually what what brings us to this list. Because what we see when, when, we, when we see what we want for our city, right, part of that what, what that exposes in us is the desires that are in our own hearts. These are desires for good things, right? The diversity is a good thing. Do you know that God created diversity? This was his idea. And that at, the end of, at the end of Revelation, right, this picture of, of uh, the end of time when the people of God are worshiping God, do you know it's a picture of diversity? It's all people from all nations, all tribes, and all tongues. God desires this. And do you know that God in and of himself, this is, God in and of himself is diverse. Right, three persons in one God. That the idea of there being differentiation and that being something that honors and glorifies and actually brings unity is, uh, is central to God's being himself. Our city being a welcoming place? Yes. We all want that. We all want to be welcome, don't we? As you realize, this is true about God, that our God is a welcoming God. That's what we read about today in our call to worship. God says, come. You don't even have to have any money. Come, buy, eat, drink, feast, delight yourself in good food. Was welcoming God. that he's loving, that he's just, that he's full of opportunity, that he's beautiful. So when we talk about what it is that we desire for our city, when we talk about, when, when we ask the question, what is it that you desire? That at the root, all of us are desiring things that in and of themselves aren't bad. But where we go wrong is that we place those ultimate desires on unultimate things. And that like David Waster Follis, David Waster Follis, <laughs> like David Foster Wallace says, it corrupts us. And that's where he fails to, to follow the consistency of his own thought. That what David Foster, we'll just call him David, okay? What David says, uh, is that, hey, it doesn't matter what you worship, it, you just need to choose it intentionally. That's kind of his argument in the overall flow of the passage, of his speech. But what the scriptures would teach us is that when we worship the wrong things, even if it's things that we have chosen, they still deform us. And these good things, when they're made ultimate things, when they're separated from the person and the character of God, um, that we're missing something really critical. 
but rather that we would see all of these desires for good things, that they would direct us toward the God who is these things. I guess that's the beauty of what we believe, that we worship a God who is in and of himself all of the things that we most desire in the world. But he's beautiful, kind, safe, welcoming, exciting, diverse, that he's just and loving, that he is fullness in and of himself and that he desires fullness for us. That's true about our God. What did they know about God that we don't know? Nothing. But the invitation for us is is that we would let what we know about God actually start to shape our desires, that we would ask him to do that, that we would be stirred by his power, by his goodness, by his wisdom, by his beauty, by his holiness. Like I don't know if you guys remember this. This summer we did this, this sermon series about questions about God, like questions in the Old Testament that God asks. That's what it was. This is bad news if I don't even remember what we preached on this summer. Okay. And one of the questions we preached on was out of the book of Isaiah. When God asks, whom shall I send and who will go for me? And we talked about the holiness of God. And I still cannot get out of my mind. One of the things that was mind-blowing for me in studying that passage is that what sets our God apart when he says he's holy, 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 what makes him holy is the fact that he redeems sinners that he delights in them, that he comes toward them, and that he cleans them and purifies them for his own work. That's what sets our God apart. That's what that passage says. That's what makes him holy, holy, holy. Man, that, that has captured me since we've preached that sermon. It's still blowing my mind that our God is that good and that he would describe his greatness in terms of, of what it means for him to come after us. So what is it about God that's grabbing your heart right now? And if, if you don't know, I would encourage you, and make, make space to think about that. Don't even think about what are the, all the other things you worship instead. That's, that's a good question, I guess. But the question that is more important is what is it about God that's captivating to you? That there's an invitation here that we would take the time to, to grow in the discipline of the worship of God and the awe of God, which is gonna require stillness in our lives, just like we practiced kind of at the beginning of the service that it takes quiet and stillness for this, the seeds of God's character to germinate and grow into awe in your life. And you've got to have fuel, fuel for that as well. Right? That's, that's part of what we do when we come here and we worship together. Is that it gives us a fuel that we can sit with when we're thinking about in, this, in the silence and in the stillness. God, who are you? And that we, what we pray and hope happens here on Sunday mornings is that our hearts and our affections are shaped toward uh, the worship of God. Because otherwise, all the work that we've been talking about and the work that we read about people doing in this passage, it just becomes like eating broccoli to us. 
And God has so much more for us than that. And that as we, as we worship, that our worship changes us. That's what David Foster Wallace is saying, that, that uh, what we worship, it, it changes us. And as we are changed, our city is changed. That our worship of God, it draws us into action because our God is a God of action. And draws us into this action of rebuilding, the action of defending. What do we see happening in this passage? Those are kind of the two forms of work that we see going on here. That the people are building something and they're defending something and they're doing it together. And so our worship calls us into this work. Yes, the work of building, the work of defending, but it also calls us into this work of doing it together. Because being involved in the worship of God and being about his work in the world, it will always, always, always require you to say help. It has to. Because the work we're being called into is so much bigger than us because it's God-sized. He designed it that way. We see that in verses 19 and 20 of this passage. Nehemiah says, the work is great and widely spread and we're separated on the wall far from one another. In the place where you see this, where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there, our God will fight for us. He's saying, there are gonna be times in this building where we may need to call ourselves together because there's gonna be something that comes against us that we can only accomplish together. Like, what are you, what are you building in your life? A career or calling? Maybe you're, maybe you're building something on your street, right, with your neighbors, like a, a, na- a sense of neighborhood that you're maturing in your life. That's something that you're building, right? And in those places, do you know that you're going to need to say, Help. They're gonna require you to say help. And that's a good thing. Like, what does that look like? I've been thinking about this idea. One of my mentors was saying this to me a few weeks ago, that mentorship is not about you asking someone, hey, will you mentor me? Hey, will you disciple me? And then putting uh, all of your expectation on that person to come up with whatever it is they think that you need so that you can receive it and then kind of sort through it and say, well, well, you know, I don't really like that opinion, but I do like this opinion, so. Thank you for your input. I'll go take that over here. That's kind of how we think about discipleship or mentorship. That's, that's not uh, the biblical picture of that. Like the biblical, the, what we're talking about here is you crying out for help, that you would say the things that I'm building in my life are so important and I am so uh, unable to accomplish them myself that I am desperate for the input of other people. And so I'm gonna think about where is it that I need help and I'm gonna go to the people who can help me and I'm gonna say, please help me. And they're gonna say, I don't know how to help you. And you can say, well, here's some questions. I would love to get your thoughts on these. It's like a passionate pursuit of your need for help in that. That's what crying out help looks like when we're trying to build something. What about when we're trying to defend something? Oh, can I say too, when it comes to help? Uh, we need a lot of help here. So uh, this is me saying help, uh, help to you. That for us to do what happens here on a Sunday morning, we need help. There, I don't know if you know this. Some of you may not know this. There are children in the back of this place. <laughs> uh, yes, they're there. One of mine is there right now. We want to see these kids 
grow up to know and follow Jesus. And we see the, of, of what is happening in the back of this church right now as, as a critical part of that, this discipleship happening back there. We need your help to make that happen. You know, we, have, we would love to open up more classes for kids, but we can't do that right now because we don't have a full roster of volunteers for the three classes that we currently have. And I'm not saying that to, like, to guilt trip you or anything like that. I'm just saying we need your help. Uh, for worship, we need your help to click the slides and some people to do audio. I don't know if you were here a few weeks ago. We had someone who played percussion for us. I loved it. We would love to have that more often. We need people who can play percussion. We would love to have people greeting and doing hospitality stuff for us here. We need your help with that. You know, we have, we have 150 people in our small groups. What? That's like double the people that come here on a Sunday morning. That's awesome, okay? And our groups are full to bursting. And what we want to see is more, we, we need more groups because there are people who want to come and be a part of them, which means that we need people who would apprentice our small groups. Basically, if this is a place that you call home, uh, I'm just telling you, we need your help. You can grab a little card on the way out that has a little QR code on it. That's, that's a way that you can find out how we need your help. If you want to be a part of growing our small groups, we have a training coming up for that. If you want to be an apprentice in a group, talk to your group leader about that. We would love to have you be a part of helping what God is building here. And then we also need help defending God's work in our own lives. And our passage teaches us to expect that. Have you guys ever heard well, okay, fun fact. I used to play the trumpet in middle school, okay? That has zero relevance for exactly what we're talking about here. But uh, the Israelites, when they, would pl- when they would say like a trumpet call, they weren't talking about like the do-do-do-do, the trumpet that I played in middle school. They were talking about um, a ram's horn, a shofar. Have you guys ever seen one of these things? I only saw one because the church that I used to live next to in Woodbine, during their worship services at 8 p.m. every night of the week, would blow the shofar. Like, just rocking it loud during the worship service. Their doors were open, and we would hear that ram's horn just echoing through the neighborhood and just into our home. Uh, that trumpet is a loud thing. Right? There are people building on work sites all across the city, and Nehemiah is saying, you're going to hear this trumpet from wherever you are, and you're going to come, and we need your help to defend what we're building here. Do you know that in your life, there will be times where you need to blow a trumpet like that for yourself? And that's not a thing to be ashamed of. Like, if you have an addiction in your life, man, that is a place to to blow the shofar, right? I need help. Sin in your life that you can't get out from under, yes, that's a place to blow the trumpet. Maybe it's a relationship that's blowing up where you feel trapped, caught, embarrassed with a friend or a roommate or a spouse or a sibling or a parent. Yes, help. I just want to tell you, you don't have to wait until you're in a code red situation to blow the trumpet, okay? We would love for you to blow it before that and to let people in this community know, hey, I need help. And our our worship prepares us to expect that because it reminds us that we have limitations. That as we become a God-worshiping community, that we would become a community that cries out for help, both to build and to defend what we know is important to us and important to God.
And that brings us to the communion table. That kind of pulls together all the things that we've been talking about. Because what we celebrate at the table is the most revelatory act of the character of God. That Jesus Christ on the cross is the clearest revelation of God's character to us. It's where we see the self-giving love of our Savior and our God. That the cross didn't happen to him. That he chose it. That he chose it because of his great love for us. He didn't go to the cross to appease some angry father and try to convince God the Father to be okay with us. He came because God the Father loved us so much that there is nothing that he wouldn't do, no price he wouldn't pay to see us restored to himself. Even while we were his enemies. What kind of love is this? It's a kind of love that draws worship out of us that the high and lifted up, the eternal God, who's all-powerful, who's deserving of all praise, that he would lower himself, not just to come and be a human, but to die on a cross for us because of his great love for us. And that's what we mark here at the communion table. And this table, it comes with a warning that if you are not yet a Christian, the warning is, hey, this, this table is not yet for you. Because to, to take communion is to acknowledge and to participate, to accept this self-giving love of Jesus. And you're at a place where you're saying, I don't need that. I'm not ready for that yet. Okay. Then don't come right now. But I encourage you, man, don't delay in working through the questions that you have because he desires that you would come to him. And there's a warning for us too, even if we, are, if, if we are in Christ. Because if there's a part of your life where you are saying no to Jesus, if you're saying, you, you cannot convict me here, you cannot speak to me here, if you can hear his voice and you're saying, no, I do not care what you have to say about this part of my life, I mean, don't come to this table right now. Because love, this kind of love, it demands all of us, our whole selves, and if there's a part of you that you're refusing to surrender, then you need to deal with that first. That you would repent of those things and soften your heart toward the Lord. Let him soften your heart toward him. Because he's worthy of your worship. He is good and his love for you is strong and what he is calling you into is a gift to you. And this table is a place for crying out for help. It's a place for people who are wounded, who are broken, and who are sinful. Still. It's a place for people who need help building and a place for people who need help defending, who need to be defended and who need to be built up. This table is a place where we're strengthened for the journey of faith that Christ would call us on. And so here's how we're gonna uh, walk through this sacrament this morning. So I'll ask you, uh, you can fold down the kneelers that are in front of you. And uh, I'm going to invite the worship team to come up right now. And what we're going to do here is, is have uh, a song that is a song that creates space for you to reflect. 
to be still, to be quiet before God. You can sing if you want. Uh, and that you would let the love of God bring you uh, to, to worship and to repentance. You'd be able to, uh, to acknowledge before God in this space your need for him, to cry out for him. Then after we play this song, uh, I'll come up and I'll lead us in taking the bread and then we'll have another song where we can reflect and take the cup together. So uh, let, me, let me pray for us. Father, we, we confess that so often our hearts are so cold toward you. Um, Father, we're thankful that you don't hold that against us. We worship you and praise you for the fact that your heart toward us is never cold. That, Lord, in the midst of our sin, in the midst of our suffering, that you are always for us, that you always move toward us. And Jesus, we ask that you'd be showing us uh, where in our hearts we need you to be moving toward us now, Lord, that we wouldn't be afraid of those places, but that you would uh, show, us, show us where they are so that we can receive more clearly uh, your, your love toward us. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.